This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, January 16th, 2023. It is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I'm Kyle Kellums, and this is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Thank you for being with us on this Monday. Ahead this hour, Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History returns to begin a new year of archival sharing. He's bringing us the voice of Eliza Jane Ashley, the executive chef at the Arkansas Governor's Mansion for 36 years. She made meals for seven different governors, their families, and their guests. Our conversation begins in about 11 minutes. To start this Monday, an exhibit exploring the little-known history of the enslavement of Africans and African Americans but the Cherokee tribe is now on display at the Cherokee National History Museum in Tahlequah. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. More than 13 million Africans beginning in the 16th century were kidnapped, shackled, and transported from their tribal homelands to the Americas, where they were purchased by early European colonists and later Americans as slave labor Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Muscogee, and Seminole tribes also engaged in chattel slavery, even when forced to abandon their indigenous homes and farms under the Indian Removal Act of 1830 and marched to Indian Territory, present-day Oklahoma. These tribes brought their enslaved men, women, and children with them. Within 30 years, as many as 10,000 Africans and African Americans lived in bondage in Indian Territory. The Cherokee National Government in 1863 was the first tribe, however, to outlaw slavery, three years later granting Cherokee citizenship rights to the newly declared freedmen and their descendants. But many decades later, in 2007, Cherokee tribal members overwhelmingly voted to strip enrolled freedmen descendants, which then numbered 2,800, of their membership and critical benefits, redefining tribal citizenship and entitlement only to those who could prove Cherokee ancestry. The Cherokee Nation Supreme Court, in response to a 2017 U.S. District Court ruling, struck down that blood quantum mandate from its constitution and tribal law, reinstating the freedmen. A new exhibit, We Are Cherokee, Cherokee Freedmen and the Right to Citizenship, reveals for the first time this fraught history, says Cherokee Nation Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin, Jr. Now, Cherokee history is full of rich moments, full of great triumph, full of Cherokee people acting collectively to overcome tragedy, work through trauma, and build a great nation. Recognizing that's important and telling that story is important, but we have to tell the whole of the story. We have to recognize that there were times that we imposed trauma on others, and I'm talking specifically and plainly about the enslavement of other human beings. I mean, we have to say, we have to acknowledge that we enslaved African Americans under our own law. We have to say that part of our economy was built literally on the backs of people we enslaved. If we ignore that, if we uh, suppress that, uh, we do to uh, freedmen and their descendants the same things that have been done to Cherokee people. Our story has been suppressed. Our story uh, has been denied. And I think any nation uh, is a stronger nation if they tell the whole of their story, the tragedy, the triumph, and the chapters that are dark and difficult. 
Hoskin believes this groundbreaking exhibit instills certain hope. That we're in a new era in which, yes, we're recognizing that history, but we're also working towards collective healing. And this exhibit isn't just for Cherokee citizens of freedmen descent to come and see, although I hope they do. It's for all Cherokees to come and explore our history, to recognize what happened, and to make sure that uh, in the future we are acting as a unified people. Presently, the Cherokee Nation, which count more than 400,000 members, occupy a 7,000-square-mile area of northeastern Oklahoma across 14 counties. Members must prove ties to at least one direct ancestor listed on the Dawes Roll, a federal census of Native inhabitants compiled over eight years at the turn of the 20th century. More than 11,800 citizens of freedmen descent are presently enrolled in the Cherokee Nation, including Melissa Payne. Being a Cherokee citizen makes me proud. I can smile and say I am Cherokee. Um, my mother worked extremely hard for the rights of her, her children, her family, all of us. And so I must say, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that we've moved forward, and I am proud to say I am Cherokee. Melissa Payne is a Freedman historian and member of the Freedman History and Art Project Steering Committee. I, I believe it's hard for a lot of us to see the history because now, you know, it's not, I mean, there, it still exists, but there's not as many people that are for what happened in the past. And so, I believe it's great to have that history put out there and us to be able to get understanding and for others to get understanding. Although it's a touchy subject, although it, it's hard for people that ancestors or descendants were a part of it in both ways, but history is important. That way we won't repeat it, you know? Travis Owens is cultural tourism vice president for the Cherokee Nation. So the Cherokee Freedman History Project began in early 2021. It was an effort by Chief Hoskin to elevate the voice of Cherokee freedmen within our Cherokee community, tell the stories that have long not been told. And so this project clearly established the fact that this project would be led by a group of Cherokee freedmen community advisors. We have been working diligently with that community, that group of community advisors over the past more than a year. Some of those efforts have included um, an opportunity to update all of our interpretation within our Cherokee cultural sites and museums. So the way we share our story and making sure it's fully inclusive of those stories of the Cherokee Freedmen community. Owen says the tribe reached out to the Cherokee Freedmen community for family stories, photographs, artifacts, and artworks. Cherokee Freedmen are really underrepresented in the artwork that we display on all of our public properties. So we intentionally set about calling for new art that interpreted those Cherokee Freedmen community stories. And so I'm happy to say that artwork is on display and, and will help share that story. Earlier this year, we announced a call for stories, materials from Cherokee Freedmen community with the intent that some of those stories would be included in an exhibition about the Cherokee Freedmen community their, and their right to citizenship. And so some of those stories will also be included in our Cherokee National Research Center for posterity purposes and for research so that, so that those community stories are saved for future generations. Cherokee Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin says the exhibit has been personally illuminating. 
I've been on a journey of understanding uh, the history of slavery in the Cherokee Nation, the history of uh, freeing slaves after the United States Civil War, and how before Oklahoma statehood, uh, the, the Cherokee freedmen were part of the civil society of the Cherokee Nation. I have to acknowledge that it wasn't until I was an adult, well into my adulthood, that I really started to examine that. Uh, and I think that has been beneficial for me personally. Um, I also believe deeply uh, in the cause of civil rights for every person, every American. Those are human rights. Those are universal rights. If there's any nation that ought to be uh, leading on the subject of civil rights, of human rights, of equality, well, it ought to be the Cherokee Nation. Another little-known history reveals that between 1492, first contact, until 1880, as many as 5 million indigenous men, women, and children were also enslaved by European colonists and early Americans. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Activists and historians are coming together next month to discuss and remember one of the most painful moments in Arkansas history. The Voices of Elaine Symposium is scheduled for February 4th in Hot Springs, and it will explore the events and aftermath of the 1919 Elaine Massacre in eastern Arkansas. Christy Rossett is chairing the symposium and says the deadly incident of racially charged violence is still relatively unknown. Those who survived were told, do not talk about it. In fact, there was even a newspaper article um, ad saying, go to work continue your lives, don't talk about it, and needed to pretend like nothing had happened because they were still in fear of their lives or fear of getting their family members killed. Rossett says the symposium will feature three descendants of victims of the massacre, some of whom were not aware of the violence for quite some time. And even the descendants whose grandparents um lived, some who lived through the massacre and some who died, um, the descendants didn't hear about this until well into adulthood. It was even kept from the family members. The symposium will be hosted by the Hot Springs chapter of the NAACP and the Elaine Legacy Center. It's scheduled for 11 a.m. February 4th at the Central Theater in Hot Springs. More information available at Voices of Elaine HS. Org. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders continues to sign executive orders during her first week in office. After signing seven within hours of being inaugurated on Tuesday, the governor issued another order Friday that rescinds five COVID-19 measures put in place by her predecessor, Governor Asa Hutchinson. Governor Sanders issued a statement that the government has prioritized COVID-19 disproportionately and allowed other health concerns like addiction, cancer screenings, diabetes, and mental health to worsen. Walton Arts Center presents Time for Three, a category-defying trio of string musicians who combine elements of classical music, Americana, and modern pop. This Grammy-nominated trio performs music from Bach and Brahms to their own arrangements of The Beatles, Katy Perry, Justin Timberlake, and others. See them live at Walton Arts Center January 24th. Tickets at waltonartscenter.org. KUAF is supported by Pack Rat Outdoor Center in Fayetteville, serving Northwest Arkansas since 1973 with backcountry and urban footwear, clothing, equipment, and more. Pack Rat is dedicated to conservation and waste reduction. 
packratoc.com for online shopping, shipping, or curbside pickup. Still to come today on Ozarks, Tootsie had people packed into movie theaters in 1982. The story about an actor trying almost everything to get a job on a daytime soap is back, but he's no longer trying to get a job on a soap, but in a musical. The timely updates of Tootsie in about 20 minutes on today's Ozarks at Large. Oh, I decided I'd go cooking instead of working in the field. I was about 15 then. I didn't like picking and chopping cotton. With me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio is Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. First of all, welcome back. Happy hey, New Year. Hey, it's great to be back. Yes. It feels like it's been forever. Who did we just hear? Well, that was Liza Ashley, Liza Jane, uh, Eliza Jane Ashley to be exact. And can I just say I've cooked up a pretty good segment for this week. Well, uh, you did say that, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry, I did. But um, the reason we're doing this is that Liza, as she was known, who was born, by the way, on a plantation in uh, Lone Oak County, exactly in, in Pettis. Pettis, Arkansas. Yeah, to be exact, in 1917. And as she mentioned, she didn't like picking cotton, so she started to cook. Right. And bake, and she became the executive chef in the governor's mansion. And held that position for a while. 36 years. Yeah. And was under seven different governors and first families and administrations, whatever you want to call it. And she started there actually in 1954 as a maid for Governor Francis Cherry. It's going back a ways. Yes. Yeah. And then uh, when Orville Faubus came into office uh, in 56, she became the executive chef. And it was probably just her by herself. Right. So she was the cook. Right. Uh, for the governor's mansion. So went through the KATV archives and found all kinds of great stuff on her. But here is an interview um, from 1985, and she talks about the Southern cooking uh, that Orville Faubus liked and some of his favorite dishes. He was a favorite of pound cake and chicken and dumplings (laughs) and Southern food. We cooked a lot of... You know, black-eyed peas and greens and things like that. That's from 1985, talking about a longtime governor of Arkansas, Orville Faubus, what he liked to eat. Yeah, and that, of course, the the big uh, event that happened while uh, Faubus was early in office was mm-hmm. the 57 crisis. Right. And things, of course, were mighty tense. He's a staunch segregationist, or at least is taking that role. Right. Yeah. And her being African American, um, she she talked about the tension that that was going on all around the mansion and around the city, for that fact. At that time, he had guards at the back door, front door, and national guards, and then we had troopers sleeping in and out, and it was just. But it all passed over. Eliza Jane Ashley, chef at the governor's mansion for 36 years, talking about what it was like during the Central High Crisis. Right. And so um, let's just go through some more of the governors, I guess. uh, Because next up, 
went to Brockefeller. Right. First Republican in a long time to be governor of Arkansas. Since Reconstruction. That's a long time, yeah. That is a long time. And that was in 1966 when he came into office. Uh, so when he moved into the mansion, you know, he was a Rockefeller. From up, you know, up there. He was a Yankee. <laughs> and um, he didn't like the kind of Southern food that uh, had been cooked uh, in the in the mansion for Orville Faubus. Um, she mentions uh, that he preferred the northern food. And, you know, some of the dishes, uh, lobster Newburg, mm-hmm. uh, clam chowder, crab bisque, or quiche. And those were some of his favorites. We so, don't have a lot of lobsters in Arkansas. No. Yeah. No. And right. it's actually, she was kind of demoted a little mm-hmm. bit because... Rockefeller came in, brought his own executive chef. Again, he's a Rockefeller. Exactly. (laughs) And uh, so she was the assistant, would fill in when he was gone, would work on weekends, that sort of thing. But then came Dale Bumpers. From Charleston. Good old Southern boy. Yeah. And so she was back in the saddle and cooking what she loved and was good at cooking. So... It was during that time that she started making chocolate chip cookies. And she kind of became known for these cookies, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, people raved about it, would <laughs> love to go to the mansion to try a cookie. So um, Archie Schaefer, mm-hmm. who we all know, uh, was actually nephew to Dale Bumpers and his chief of staff. So he was around the mansion all the time. So I talked to him the other day uh, about Liza and he mentions the cookies. The uh, great lady, uh, fabulous cook. Uh, I enjoyed her. Cooked a lot of Southern comfort food, I guess it's called. And was also very well known for her chocolate chip cookies. And uh, I know cookies of Liza's that I ate over the four years I worked in the governor's office, but. Later on, uh, Brent Bumpers, uh, Governor Bumpers' son, uh, got in the cookie business and developed a product they called Brent and Sam's uh, Cookie uh, that uh, I think was based on Liza's chocolate chip cookie recipe. Archie Schaefer, who was chief of staff for his uncle Dale Bumpers when Dale Bumpers was governor, talking about cookies that were at the mansion. Right. And the Brent and Sam's Mm -hmm. gourmet cookies. And they became a big hit. They were in stores. Nationwide. Oh, everywhere. Yeah. And so I was intrigued by Archie's comment that, you know, maybe he used the recipe. Maybe he was inspired. Um, So Archie got me in touch with Brent. Anyway, I fell in love with Liza's cookies, and I told her at age 20 that someday I was going to market her cookies. Anyway, she didn't take me seriously, and I, I was only half serious anyway. But sure enough, oh, 12, 13 years later, I came to her. I guess I wasn't convinced I wanted to practice law the rest of my life, so I told her I'm ready to market her cookies, and she was all for it. And so uh, I asked her... Uh, I told her I wanted to use her name, too. I was going to, well, we did start off for a few months calling them Liza's Chocolate Chip Cookies. And I was going to have a, I was going to pay her a fee just to use her uh, story and uh, a likeness. We were thinking about putting a picture over on the bag, and then our hook was going to be, you no longer have to be invited to the governor's mansion to enjoy Liza's famous chocolate chip cookies. 
I asked her for the recipe, and she said, well, I just used that recipe on the back of the Nestle's chocolate chip cookie bag, the Toll House, the Toll House recipe. I thought, oh, my God. I thought this was some, you know, long-time family secret. I did a little investigation as right. only a former right. journalist who's right. now a university state employee would right. do. Right, But I compared the <laughs> the two recipes, mm-hmm. and hers is considerably different. Um, basically, I mean, I think being a baker myself, mm-hmm. every cookie uh, or even cake all kind of have basic elements that you that you stick to. But this was kind of different enough that, um, you know, it's it's a di- it's a different cookie. OK. OK. Yeah. You want to try one? Yes. Well, I I told you I'm, I'm a baker. Yeah, you, yeah. So I I baked some last night. All right. So I brought some with me, and I'm telling you. Oh, my goodness. Um, Those look delicious. Well, they try one. And I, I hate to do this to the listeners, but I want to see what you think. It If it's not the best chocolate cookie, chocolate chip cookie I've ever had, it's darn close. More than half a dozen chips in this regular size cookie. Yes. That's the way to do it, my Well, friend. that was one thing in the recipe. It, it takes oh, my. two whole bags oh, my of chocolate chips. And I think what's different about this recipe, and it makes them taste so rich, is that, well, first of all, she uses four sticks of butter, I, which I'm never against. My goodness. <laughs> I, I like the butter. Uh, but, this is rich. But instead of just using regular cane sugar, mm-hmm. she uses half white sugar, half brown sugar, mm. which gives it sort of that creamy, uh, deep texture and flavor. So anyway, enough about that. So Brent ended up selling Brent and Sam's to Lance's for a reported $20 million. It's a lot of cookies. So. Yeah, it is. It's a lot of dough, as they would say. <laughs> Good one. Thank you, yes. Now I don't feel as bad about no. the, my first comment. So now he's doing uh, Wicked Mix, which is another gourmet. Okay. It's like a trail mix that's really, really popular. So after Bumpers came David Pryor. Uh, from Camden? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so another, you know. Another Southerner. Right. And so, um, of course, we're close to the Priors, right. and I talked to Barbara, David Pryor's wife, former first lady yes. of Arkansas, and we talked a lot about Ashley. One of the things um, I asked her about was obviously it was the first time she had ever had a cook. Oh yeah, of course. And well, here's Barbara. It was really uh, wonderful because I'm not the best cook in the world, and uh, so when. All of that occurred. I was absolutely thrilled. <laughs> so was she that was she that good? She was so good. She was absolutely excellent. And we would sit down um, every, you know, at the beginning of each month, and and make the menu for a month, more or less. And if we had special events like people for lunch or dinner or teas or coffees or those kind of events that was different but just for the family uh, menu we would sit down and plan that uh, for a month and she would grocery shop 
for a month. You know, she would she was very organized and uh, and she was just a natural cook. She said she was like, you know, part of the family. Yeah. And they would go and and do things. She was always included because, I mean, she was she was there. She was part of the family. But um, you know that sentiment was echoed by Gay White, uh, the first lady and wife of former Governor Frank White. Right, and Frank White. If you'll remember, he uh, defeated. Bill Clinton, after one term, was right. in office from 80 to 82. Then lost to Bill Clinton. And then lost to Bill right. Clinton. But I caught up with Ms. White the other day, and she told me that Liza was always kind of a calming influence mm-hmm. around the mansion. She was such a loving, comforting presence in, in the mansion. And, um, there, you know, there were times when... Um, Frank would get beat up in the press or whatever, you know, and, and, and he took it in stride. I always cried, (laughs) you know, and she would just pat me on the back and, and just, she was so loving and caring and, um, and and she was a very wise woman. Liza was very wise. She was very discreet. Um, She never talked poorly about any of her previous employers, you know, or people who had lived there. Um, and um, she just, she was very kind and gentle. And, um, but, but yeah, I, I just, she was like having another mother, you know, I really, I really was glad she was there. An amazing, amazing woman. I mean, think about it, born on a plantation mm-hmm. and then, and well, coming up, we're going to talk about a book that she did. Right. And that that sort of involves the Clintons because she did it while they were in office. And she worked for the Clintons the longest, obviously, you know, from 78 to 80 and then from 82 on. Um, And so here's a 1970 or 87 interview with then Governor Bill Clinton talking about Liza. And um, he's it seems like. And I thought this was, a, you know, a recent thing after he was president that right. he was on a diet and went vegan and all that. But apparently he's always been trying to watch his weight. I enjoy eating her food and uh, I appreciate the fact that she's flexible enough to change the way she cooks sometimes if I want to change my diet. I think she'd have me eating totally old-fashioned southern cooking and I'd weigh 280 pounds if it were up to her. But she's even good enough not to load me up uh, for a few months at a time so I can get my weight back down. You won't believe what Clinton's favorite dish was. So yeah. From Hot Springs. Yeah. Oh, ribs or something? Nope. No? Not even close. Let's hear him. Chicken enchiladas. That's probably my favorite thing. They're absolutely wonderful. I can eat a whole casserole full in a weekend. You're right. That's I wouldn't r- have guessed that's that. That's right. I would Chicken not have... enchiladas. But I don't, I don't fault him for that. Well, no. And I looked at a recipe, and this ain't diet food. <laughs> Or vegan food. Right. I mean, there's lots of cheese, lots of sour cream. I mean, everything that's not necessarily good for you, but great tasting. Yeah, right. Yeah. So you ain't going to lose weight eating eating that. So speaking of recipes, she did write a book. Yes. And I I have a copy of it here. It was in 1985. She did it with Carolyn Huber, who was uh, the chief executive of the mansion Mm -hmm. she ran the place and it's called 30 years at the mansion and and you can still get it on amazon but um you know it's got 
her recipes and it's broken up by different governors and some oh, of their fun. favorites and she tells stories and there's all kinds of pictures. Is that where you got this cookie recipe? Absolutely. Mm, so and uh, I hope I was true to it and she's looking down smiling that I did okay <laughs> with a recipe. She retired in 1990 or semi-retired. She was going to leave the mansion but then you know, that she was called in for special occasions and dinners and things like that. Because not only could she cook southern food and bake cookies, but she could do gourmet food, mm -hmm. evidenced by what she did for the Rockefellers. Right. But um, she even fed Clinton's transition team after he won the presidency, and all those people came to town. Wow. And, and were working, you know, Stephanopoulos and oh, wow. all, right. all those guys. So um, she was also uh, in D.C. for the for his uh, 93 inauguration. So here she is with Dwayne Graham being interviewed live at the Arkansas Ball. We were saying you've been there in the in the mansion for 36 years. And you cook for the Clintons now for, what, 12? Uh-huh. When he come there, was just a young man, him and his wife. They didn't know what to feed him. <laughs> you, did you teach him how to eat? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of food did you uh, prepare for President Clinton? Well, I like to cook the chicken angelado, and uh, he likes chest pie, and they like stuffed pork chops and stuff like that. Now, what are you going to do now that they're up here? Well, I just have to find something else to do. <laughs> I miss them, and I, but I'm proud for him. All right, so now she can say, you know, I was the chef for the president. Yes. I mean, that's... Two senators and a right, president. that's a very good point, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So now that Clinton's president, Liza's a hot commodity, and so is her book. Good. I mean, she's being called on to talk shows and... All the networks want her on, and um, anyway, here she is on a clip from ABC's home show talking about Bill Clinton and him occasionally coming in the kitchen and baking. Well, he cooked on Saturdays and Sunday morning breakfast, him and Chelsea. Aww. What did he make? Probably made uh, <clears throat> pancakes. I know one time he for he couldn't find the sifter, the sifter, the the flour for the pancake. He didn't know they don't sift it no more, and I don't think whether they even sell sifters or not. <laughs> so at this point, she's a celebrated author. Of course. And um, so she spent her time doing book signings and doing a lot of interviews, but here's an interview with her from uh, 1993. I love it. I love, like people, it first worried me when I left the governor's mansion because I hated to leave when it was time to go. Then I got started to traveling with this new cover. That's what set it off. They see you with uh, now the president of the United States. That makes a difference. It makes a difference. <laughs> yeah. So that's we're still in the first few months of the Clinton presidency. That's, that's right. Yeah. And she, uh, you know, she she hadn't slowed down a bit. She's probably more busy than she was yeah. in the mansion. But uh, Vic Shedler with KTV used to do these these features on it's called the senior spirit because we were the spirit of Arkansas okay. you know it's real catchy <laughs> but um, 
This is uh, an excerpt from a story he did, a feature story on Liza Ashley. The people has been here really in my little old house all over the world making pictures. I never seen nothing like it. I told him it's a funny thing that they would, I wouldn't have been known if he hadn't got to be president. I don't know about that. Simple recipes with the Liza Ashley touch seem to work some kind of kitchen magic. Or maybe not. Yeah, you can make them. Everybody else say they make them and they say how good they are. They're not hard to make. You probably got some at home now that you can use. I am going to request that we do more of these about chefs and cooks. Just oh. because I oh. want you to continue to, <laughs> to, to you know. Well, and I had fun staying oh. up last night baking these. These are so good. It was Yeah, they're pretty good. Yeah. Nice. So, um, I'm working on next week. And what are we going to hear? Well, let's take a little sample. It was physically impossible to put the FedEx Express hub in Little Rock, Arkansas, and be able to do what we were trying to do. This was a rare interview uh, that I did last week with Fred Smith, who was the founder and CEO of Federal Express, now FedEx, and it all started in Little Rock, Arkansas. Yeah. 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 And so we're going to learn about that next week. Yes. I love it. Hey, and we're doing a little gig. Yeah, when is this? Coming week? up at the Prior Center. It's Thursday, January 26th. There you go. We're doing a live video version of our show. So it'll be kind of a best of right. Ozarks at Large, except for we're going to include the video. So it's going to be us on stage with a big screen behind us. Uh, at the Pryor Center on the Square. I'm looking forward to this. We've done this a couple of times, but because it was the pandemic, you we were did in your online. office, I was in my studio, yep. and people could join us. Now we're going to be in person. Yes. Thursday, January 26th. It won't these be clips. as awkward. <laughs> well, I can't. I, I make no promises. Well, that's true. It is It is us. And it's free, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Do, do people need to register in advance? Uh, that helps. Okay. But you can also see it online. So you can go to the Prior Center website and sign up for it, okay. and it'll be streaming on Facebook and well, several different... I want to have a packed house. I hope so. Okay. Maybe I'll bake cookies. That oh. could bring some folks. Careful. Careful what you say. <laughs> uh, Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. You'll be back next Monday. We'll talk about Fred Smith and FedEx. You and I will be together Thursday night, January 26th, in person at the Pryor Center on the Fayetteville Square. You can learn about Arkansas history by Googling Pryor Center. And I'll deliver. Coming up on Season 4 of Undisciplined. I love the ways that they use their environment. I love that they use physical, like the plants that were in Africa, specifically West Africa, they not only use them for medicinal purposes, but they'd use them for physical means too. Because I think that the people who are outraged, like, why would we not? We want to keep our kids safe and all of these things, you know, and it's like, it's not just a safety. These school resource officers are trained to be police officers. The Constitution says it's it's not right to hold you in custody just because of your poverty. So judges should consider the ability to pay. But what I'm telling you is they don't. Nobody looks at that question. Almost nobody does. Episode 1 of Season 4 drops January 18th. Listen for free wherever you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. Tootsie, the 1982 film that stars a gender-bending Dustin Hoffman, 
is back as a musical. The Broadway touring production comes to the Walton Arts Center this week, and actor Jared David Michael Grant says this version updates Tootsie for a more modern audience. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth spoke to Grant ahead of the Northwest Arkansas performances. So can you just sort of walk me through, you know, for audiences who maybe had never seen Tootsie before, um, can you just sort of walk through what the show is and a little bit about your character, Jeff, and who you play? Yes, so Tootsie tells the story of talented but difficult actor Michael Dorsey who gets jobs, but he's not successful at keeping the jobs because of how arrogant of an actor he is. So because he lost out on his most recent job, he's turning 40. He starts to get in his head like, is this right for me? Have I been doing it wrong? What's wrong with everyone else? He's not thinking about what's wrong with himself. And so he has a terrible idea of dressing up as a woman to get a job. And he gets the job, and then we see his rise and downfall from the decision that he has made. And I play his best friend, Jeff Slater, who is kind of like, I like to say, the Jiminy Cricket to his character, kind of giving him those words like, you're doing something very terrible and you should not do this, and here are the reasons why. Yeah, and for you, so what sort of drew you to that, the Jeff character role, you know, to the voice of reason in this play? I just love how brash he was, just like very opinionated, very open about how he feels. And I kind of shy away from being too real with people at times, and Jeff just jumps in there. And I'm like, oh, I love that about him. He's so, he's so forward with his thoughts, and I just love how real he is. And it takes a good friend to just be straight up with someone like that, too. So I think I've also learned some good lessons. And, you know, thinking about, you know, you said this this idea that he has, sort of the premise of Tootsie is, is as Jeff puts it, a terrible idea. Um, and the original movie, Tootsie, came out in 1982. And a lot of sort of the things about it that are maybe shocking or probably problematic um, outdated today. Does the musical update any of that or tackle maybe gender identity differently? Yes. Yeah, so what was wonderful is that we were able to have the uh, book writer for the musical, Robert Horn, in the writing process with us last year and this year to really work with the book and not make it what the movie was. So our version, we have like um, to include more songs in it, Instead of it being based in a soap opera studio, it's based in the creation of a musical. So they're putting on a musical instead of doing the soap opera. We worked a lot with not having to make fun of the trope of dressing up as a woman. It's more, the jokes are more based off of the situation of what's happening with him because of these bad decisions that he's made. The women character have a much stronger voice in these uh, in the musical, I'd say. But yeah, very different from the original movie because <laughs> it was good, but it's a, a very some bits were a bit problematic. But yeah, we try to strip, stay away from those problems that the movie had, and we kind of tended to fix them, I'd say. So, can you talk a little bit about taking this kind of well-known film? And, and turning it into a musical, and maybe for you, how you approach that, like as an actor, would you approach it differently as a musical role rather than just a straight play or something? Oh, yes, for sure. Um, 
I know in the movie, Bill Murray played my character and I watched the movie just because I was, I knew of Tootsie. I didn't know much about it. So watched the movie and I saw what Bill Murray was giving. And then um, I saw clips of the musical. The actor in the musical also gave me like, I saw what he was bringing to the table. So I kind of combined those two characters and then I added my own kind of life to it. Because um, what's awesome is that they casted me. I'm a black man in the role that's been played predominantly by white men. So it's nice to have my interpretation on this character to really add more to the story, which was nice. And then for you, I guess, the show's on tour right now. Um, Yeah. So what's been kind of the reception from audiences so far in seeing it? Well, um, so this is my... I broke my foot in September. So we did the opening week in my hometown of Rochester. And on that last day, I broke my foot. So I got to return back to the show this past week in Knoxville, Tennessee. Of course, being in my hometown, the audience was super receptive of it. And then um, I'm not sure how the rest of the tour went, but coming to Knoxville, they were definitely a good crowd and they loved it. And lots of laughs. That's what I love about this show. I literally hear people coughing so hard because of how hard they're laughing. <laughs> yeah, so, well, I'm sorry about your foot. Yeah, uh, oh, you're well, better now. I am so much better. I am good. I am walking on both feet again, <laughs> causing trouble. I'm back to my normal. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and, you know, I was reading a lot of, like, the promotional material for the show, and it talks about how it's, like, a love letter to theater. And, you know, the show is coming back after being locked down from the pandemic. How does it feel to be back doing live theater? I mean, during the pandemic, did you feel like maybe you weren't going to go back or, or you didn't want to return to the theater? So I'm just kind of well, wondering how that how it feels to be doing it again. Oh, yeah. For me, when the pandemic started, I didn't even know if there would be a theater to come back to. So once they we got everything came more together um, and they said, we're actually going to do the tour. It was a big relief. It was just nice to do a show where they're, it's a funny show. So it's just nice to come back to a comedy and people are just laughing. And that's what I felt was needed, especially after the pandemic. It's just good laughs, uh, fun storyline, beautiful music, beautiful dancing, very a blessing to come back and be able to still perform on stage because yeah for a moment there i was like i don't know if we're gonna come back so i guess i have to find an alternative job i don't know what it would be (laughs) (laughs) yeah and in doing this this show this musical why take this show and update it you know what lessons can we learn from this show (laughs) to listen to your friends i'd say For other characters besides Michael, just trust in yourself and believe in your ability because there's a uh, character named Sandy who I relate most with this show. It's played by my friend Peyton, and her character is just a neurotic actor who is talented, but she just doesn't have that confidence that Michael has. And so we also see her kind of story of her coming in and like, I I know what's going to happen if I go to this audition. I'm going to fail and I'm going to be terrible. And she's constantly putting out those vibes whenever she's trying to do an audition. But we see her grow her confidence by the end, which is very nice. So I'd say 
finding your confidence as well. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit just about, I don't know, your your time as an actor, your career, and, and how you found your confidence, maybe through this play or, or even oh, before man. leading up to it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm still, I'd say I'm in a much better place with my confidence. Uh-huh. I do have those moments where I'm like, am I good though? Like after I broke my foot, I was very nervous about coming back. I was like, my talent wasn't in my foot, right. but I'm a different person than I was before I broke my foot and then after. But then once I got on that stage and then the, I said my line and the audience laughed, I was like, okay, I think I still have mm-hmm. it. For audiences who maybe know Tootsie or, or had seen the film, what can they expect from the musical? Um, they, they, they can expect um, well-flushed-out characters, great, like, funny jokes, Just a good time, good laughter. Just be prepared to laugh. Actor Jared David Michael Grant speaking with Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth. Tootsie opens at Walton Arts Center tomorrow night and will run through Sunday afternoon. On tomorrow's Ozarks, the hard work required to truly make an organization or community diverse and welcoming. We do not um, want to position ourselves as the be-all experts on this at all. We're learning and growing as well, but we do have some experience that allows us to um, perhaps hear what hasn't been said. Tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF. You can also listen to our free daily Ozarks at Large podcast, available where you already get your other podcasts. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Satan chauffeur, don't play for fun. This coach is pulled with firebred steeds, and I know every one of your wrong deeds. James Calvin Minor was born January 20th, 1931, in Duvall's Bluff in Prairie County. He became a disc jockey, label owner, producer, music publisher, and country music performer. Minor, known then as Calvin, enjoyed singing and learned to play the guitar. As a young teenager, he entered a talent contest at what's now the Arkansas State Fair and won the top prize at getting to play on Blyville radio station KLCN with country star Stoney Cooper. I saw a cowpoke in a bar who looked all down and out. I tapped him on the arm and asked him, what's it all about? His lips began to tremble and the fear came in his eyes. He turned and looked the other way and sadly did reply. Somebody rest my sugar. Now I must ride the range of love Following a stint in the Army, Jimmy Minor and his Blyville-born wife relocated to Evansville, Indiana, where he worked as a DJ. He starred in a local country music TV show with his band, The Ranch Hands, and later had another TV show based out of Princeton, Indiana. In the mid-1950s, Minor moved to Flint, Michigan. DJing for station WBBC, where he was named 1955 Michigan DJ of the Year. He also began recording. Somebody Rustled My Sugar, heard here, was a regional hit for the Flint-based Western Chuck Wagon label. Miner soon branched out to production, publishing, recording, and even artist management, but also continued to perform with the likes of Tex Ritter, Pee Wee King, Ernest Tubb, and such Arkansas-connected acts as the Wilburn Brothers.
Catskill Mountains, Rip Van Winkle went to sleep. And for 20 years, old Rip slept right on through. When he woke, the sight that met his eyes made Rip Van Winkle weep. There was not a soul around the old man knew. Reveille, Reveille. In 1960, at age 29, Minor began recording for United Artists under the more mature-sounding Jim Minor as the label's first country act. Later that year, he recorded Death Row for Mercury Records. It was a song about Michigan native Carol Chessman, a man whose case galvanized the movement against the death penalty. Heard next, the band included Chet Atkins, the Jordanaires, and fellow Arkansaier Floyd Kramer on piano. Oddly, another Arkansaier, Ronnie Hawkins of Huntsville, recorded the Ballad of Carol Chessman the same year. Chessman was executed May 2, 1960. I can see a million stars Wish that one could tell me things I'd like to know Do people laugh, do babies cry Just like they did in years gone by Before my home became a cell In death row Beyond his own recordings, Jimmy Minor used Nashville, Tennessee's RCA studio and its famous players as an independent producer, working with Floyd Kramer, Chet Atkins, Junior Husky, Hank Garland, and others. Minor appeared on the Grand Ole Opry in 1961 and made his last recordings in 1965. He continued to tour and perform through the mid-1970s until he retired, returning to Arkansas and his native Prairie County. Soon the guard will come and say, it's time to go. Only 13 steps away They'll make me walk at break of day To that room down at the end of death row As that gas around me creeps And lulls me to my final sleep There is just one other thing I'd like to know Jimmy Minor died November 7, 2009. In 2011, he was posthumously inducted into the Rockabilly Hall of Fame and into the Michigan Country Music Hall of Fame. He's buried at Pepper's Lake Cemetery, south of Duval's Bluff. Here in its entirety is Satan's Chauffeur on Mercury Records by Jimmy Minor of Duval's Bluff in Prairie County. Chauffeur, don't play for fun. This coach is full with firebred steeds, and I know every one of you wrong deeds. Your name is on a page of our big book. Rich man, poor man, thief or crook, and it makes no difference how you moan. Oh, Satan and I want to hear you groan. Don't come to us on bended knees. We won't hear Thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal But Satan's court grants no appeal 
When you ride with us, it'll be too late. Fire and brimstone will be your fate, and you can't turn this wagon back. Satan's chauffeur is driving this high. Don't come to us on bended knees. We won't hear one of your calls, please. You had your chance and passed it by. Come on, sinner, now let's hear you Jimmy Minor, Duvall's Bluff in Prairie County with Satan's Chauffeur on the Mercury label from 1960. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansongs. Arkansongs is a production of Experiment Station Studios. Producer is Keith Merks. Arkansongs since 1998. Arkansas Razorback runner Britton Wilson starting 2023 by setting a new collegiate record in the 600 meters. Friday at the Arkansas Invitational, the sophomore finished the race in just over one minute and 25 seconds, bettering the previous collegiate record set in 2021. Overall, Wilson's marked the seventh fastest ever by a U.S. runner, the tenth fastest ever run in the world. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art invites guests to the final weeks of Fashioning America, an exhibition dedicated to American fashion from across two centuries with more than 100 garments and accessories on display. On view through January 30th. Tickets and information at crystalbridges.org. Mentioned Britton Wilson a minute ago and what she did during the Arkansas Invitational Friday, the Razorback women's basketball team in action tonight. They're in Bud Walton hosting Vanderbilt, trying to improve to 4-1 and one in the SEC. Meanwhile, the men's basketball team will attempt to snap a three-game losing streak Wednesday night in Missouri. Razorbacks are up to 1-4 and four in the SEC with a 13-point loss at Vanderbilt Saturday afternoon. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Decatur. Ozarks at Large, a production of KUAF. Today's show created inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. Our theme written and performed by Daryl Sean. Contributors this Monday included Jacqueline Froelich, Daniel Carruth, and Randy Dixon. I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks for being with us.